Hello and welcome back after a uh, brief hiatus to the Silmarillion Film Project. I am your co-host Dave Kale, and I am joined, as always, by the Tolkien professor Corey Olson and the Tolkien Maven Trish Lambert. And today we are talking compression. <laughs> that's right. We're gonna. We're gonna. <laughs> we're gonna that's right. So we decided just to have a really short episode tonight in order to embody the theme of compression. <laughs> We're going to talk yes. about everything in like 10 minutes. So that's the yeah. plan. Um, that's a joke, of course. It's likely to be quite the reverse of that, but that's okay. Uh, and then, of course, after we talk about compression, we're then going to get to the big love story, which is a big deal. Um, uh, so that's the, uh, that's the ambition tonight, to, uh, uh, to go over both of these things. Awesome. Uh, so glad you guys could both be with us again. Uh, yeah. Let's uh, jump to announcements because we have uh, a couple big and uh, proximate events going on here. Uh, first, Mythmoot. Mythmoot is happening on the weekend of August 6th through 9th. And uh, many of you will have heard the announcement that we, uh, we have decided with uh, due to recent developments that we, are, we have made the shift and we're doing Mythmoot entirely, entirely remotely this year. Um, and it actually, it's going to be really cool. So uh, one of the things that we were discussing, I mean, when we just, uh, when we were kind of making this decision, one of the things that I said from the beginning, I'm like, look, we do online presentations of, you know, talks and symposia and stuff like that all the time. Like, this is what we do, which is great. I mean, you know, like, sure, it means we're comfortable doing that and everything. But uh, but I don't want Mythmoot to just be like just yet another broadcast in our weekly calendar. Right. Like, that's just not how Mythmoot should be. Um, so, you know, our team has been working really hard in working on how to um, preserve the like really cool distinctive uh, elements and, you know, the not merely... Um, uh, you know, presentation elements uh, of the conference from things like our, you know, costume ball to things like uh, our room of requirement where you can go and hang out and do activities and uh, and sort of have some quiet time to our, uh, you know, time sitting together around the fire pits until two o'clock in the morning talking together. And, um, you know, the, it's one thing to be able to show up and listen to talks by people like Verlin Flieger and Tom Shippey and Amy Sturgis, all of whom will be giving talks at Mythmoot this year. But... Of course, like at the event, you get to like hang out afterwards and talk to Verlin Flieger in the hall after her talk, right? Or or sit down and, and have lunch with Amy Sturgis, you know, at her table uh, in the dining hall. Like those are the things that are super cool about Mythmoot. So we are uh, we're gonna we're gonna have two different registration levels for Mythmoot this year. One is Mootcast, which is the same as we had last year, just gives you access to um uh to the um. To, to the talks, basically. So you can you can tune in to the presentations and you can uh, get the archived recording to hear them afterwards and stuff. So Mootcast is especially useful for folks who basically can't really be there synchronously, who, you know, just don't have uh, the ability to kind of be there and be present um, during those days, August 6th through 9th. But for those who can be with us, even though we're not going to be there in person, um, uh, but really can be part of this uh, real-time experience that we're developing. We have another registration level called Moot Hub, uh, which is to really be at the heart of the action. And that's going to contain a lot of these sort of social opportunities to be able to sit down and chat with Verlin Flieger and Tom Shippey, to be able to... Um, 
to be able to have some of the experiences. In fact, uh, so so Marie, we're totally going to be having uh, a, a, a a social channel called the Fire Pit, uh, where we're going to be able to hang out and talk and stuff. Um, so anyway, it's going to be really cool. I'm really excited uh, about uh, our our shot here at really trying to capture as much of the spirit uh, of camaraderie of this event that we possibly can as we transition it to a totally online event. Um, So uh, that's what I wanted. So I I wanted to make sure to explain the difference between the Mootcast registration level and the Moot Hub registration level. For those of you who have uh, signed up for Mootcast already, like in the past, knowing you couldn't be there um, and would like to upgrade to Moot Hub, you can. We have a, a, a registration link for that. Um, it's a simple upgrade. It's not a whole lot more. It's way cheaper, obviously, than the in-person one was because we don't have to pay the venue for it anymore. Um, but um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Hey, Nick, I object to that. I was not, in fact, intoxicated that evening. I was perfectly fine. People assumed that I was, but it wasn't true. Um, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, no, it's... Uh, myth mood is always a lot of fun. Let me just say... Let me just put it that way. Um, but, um, yeah, so this is... Uh, so this is... This is the plan. It's going to be great. August 6th through 9th. Uh, so I hope you'll be able to join us uh, for our really excellent uh, and dynamic and highly interactive and immersive MythMoot experience uh, online this year, August 6th through 9th. The other thing to point out, which is happening even sooner than MythMoot, because it's indeed happening in two days' time. Uh, in fact, slightly less than 48, about 36 hours from now, um, is Signum Summit on Teaching the Humanity. Um, this is a really big deal. We're planning at Signum to launch an undergraduate humanities program. And the first step of doing that is we're calling this summit meeting for faculty who teach in the humanities because we want to pool uh, the wisdom and expertise of many of our colleagues uh, as we work to shape our program. But it's more than just about our program. We really want to talk through these issues and do some general thinking about what should the humanities look like move forward, moving forward? What are some of the core principles? Because the humanities, we need to do better with teaching the We, everybody, like humanities teachers, we need to do better um, in making everybody understand the, the relevance of the humanities in the 21st century, which is huge. But also we need to kind of change the game as far as the overall relationship of higher education to the humanities, which is deeply broken. Uh, so... We want to think about also, what we can change, what we can do differently. Also, humanity needs to do better. Well, yes, that's also true. <laughs> that's also true. Uh, <laughs> but that's beyond our remit, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we're, we're, start, we're, we're starting with what we can do. Uh, anyway, so I just wanted to draw people's attention to that. If you want more information on either one of these things, uh, then you should go to the Signum University website uh, and you scroll down a little bit to our events pane down here and you will see, of course, the link to MythMoot here where you can sign up for our uh, uh, for all of the levels of MythMoot there for your upgrade. Uh, and, of course, the Summit on the Teaching of the Humanities, where you can go. We have a whole Q&A session that we did down here to explain what we're doing and why we're doing it. Uh, so anyone who is interested in that or who knows others who might be interested in that, 
let us know. Just send an email with a statement of interest and a CV to humanities at signumu.org, and you can still participate in our summit on teaching the humanities, uh, which is going to be awesome. Uh, And of course, I would draw to your attention our Signum Path page. Of course, Signum Path is entering into, preparing to enter into its third month. Um, We are entering the month of August. Um, So if you uh, come to the Signum Path page uh, and go to our Badges and Courses page, you can see all the things that we are offering. uh, And of course, our register button up here. So there's still time to register for our August courses. Our first a uh, couple months have been uh, tremendous. We've gotten really wonderful response uh, from the folks who have completed our first month in June and who and all of whom have come back for July. We have 100% retention from June to July. Everyone's really excited and enthusiastic about this new program. So I uh, just wanted to, again, draw it to people's attention. All right. Those... In, case you need, in case you need additional incentive, I'm now that it's online, I'm definitely going to miss it. You're definitely going to Mythmoot? I nice. Yeah. Awesome. I'm gonna go sign up. I'm gonna go sign up um while we're doing the podcast. <laughs> well, maybe I'll wait till after. Awesome. Maybe I'll wait till after the podcast. <laughs> awesome. That's okay. That's you great. Can... It's exciting. I mean it's you know, it's you're right. Like one of the things that really makes Mythmoot special is um is uh is is the is the fact that that, that this community is online all the time, uh and yes. getting in person and seeing folks is like, you know, that's like the real, the real draw of Mythmoot. But, but the upside is under current circumstances where that may not be possible. Um, this community is like, like pivoting to online is like, oh, yeah, no exactly. Problem. It's <laughs> easy enough. Yeah. Some people have said that to me. They're like, why do you, you seem really resistant to moving, you know, your events online. I would think it would be really easy for you. And I'm like, yeah, it's easy, but that's the point. Like, that's, That's what we do all the time. The whole purpose of our events is that we want to we want to actually do things in person in addition to the rest of yeah. our online stuff all the time. Like, thoroughly um, uninteresting to do so. Right, exactly. It's it's <laughs> not it's not that it's hard or that we don't like it. It's just that the, the whole point is it's supposed to be our change of pace, right? It's supposed to be the thing that's different. Uh, but um, but anyway, no. But but I agree. It does mean that it's 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 pretty easy for us to do, uh, yeah. and we're uh, uh, and we're excited. We're excited about it. I, I think it's going to. And be I cool. personally, personally, selfishly, I'm like, I'm excited because I can now participate. Like, yeah, sort of. Yeah, in, on the same footing as everyone else. So that's good. Exactly. I'm very excited. I'm, it's it's I mean, certainly I'm, is one of the great benefits uh, of the yeah. shift. Is that it is you know it does mean it's going to be much more accessible uh, to uh, uh, to everybody. So you know, and that's that's of course a, w- one of the primary things. I mean, it's still not technically impossible for us to have it in person. I mean, like you know. State of Virginia hadn't banned us yet, but um, we, at the end of the Great day, of it was going to be, it's, it's, yeah, still really uncertain, even now, still uncertain. Uh, and, but, but in addition, there were so many people who were, you know, just impede, for whom it was really just going to be impossible to come. We wanted to make sure to uh, include everybody. So, um, I don't, I don't know if, you know, I don't know if people are aware of this, but, um, Mythmood has a you know storied place in the history of the Silmarillion film podcast. This is where we like. I don't think we we didn't conceive of it at a Mythmood, but we, this is where we, we announced certainly it. announced it. Yeah, it's where yep. we announced it. Yeah, it was Mythmood three. I think it was Mythmood three right. at which we yeah, announced. Yeah, uh... that, that was at the tail end of the run of Hobbit films, right? Yep. Yep. Exactly. Yep. 
you know, went and watched it together in a theater, an experience that seems millions of years removed from what we're right now. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> and it was the third Hobbit film that drove us to say, we're leaving reality behind. We're done with real movies. We're going yeah. we're gonna, to we're yeah. voyage out we're into the so realm of pure imagination. We're with the third Hobbit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is the, sorry to to keep dragging on the myth moot discussions and delaying the uh, progress on some film, but is the, is the agenda nailed down? Or is it like, is, is everything in almost, now? almost there's going to be, a, there's going to be a final agenda published uh, very soon. It's not, it's not yet published, but it's, it's, uh, it's in its final stages. You got, you got any room to squeeze some film film in there? I don't know. I I am not uh, in charge of this. Actually, I actually haven't seen the schedule. I don't know what it is. Uh, but um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, there's always time for at the very least, there's always time for informal discussion. So yeah. that's true. Very good. Yes, good point. We'll have to have a birds of feathers uh, session. All right. Okay. Sorry. I'll stop distracting us. <laughs> but it's very exciting. I I I was I been like out of the like wasn't paying attention this week so hearing that it's going online it's like oh i'll go sign up now great yeah yeah no it it is very exciting i'm i'm uh i'm really looking forward to it to me the thing that's going to be strange i will come back in person in the future i will yeah, <laughs> the thing is, to me, that, that's that's going to be strangest about Mythmoot for me is that on the like it is going to be a really immersive experience. I mean, I'm pretty much planning to be like involved in Mythmoot stuff and hanging out with people, pretty much just like I would be if I were in Virginia. You know, like I, I'd be you know yep. all you know every minute of my day from you know beginning to end and staying up late at night and everything. Like I'm going to do, I'm planning to do all the, except I'll be here, right? So I've I've been trying to explain to my family. I'm like, on the one hand, I'm not going to virginia this year on the other hand i'm totally not going to be here either <laughs> like don't don't assume that just because i'm in the house you're gonna see me like i'm gonna be at virtual myth mood all weekend long so yeah yeah it's gonna be it's gonna be fun but interesting so all right cool um so yeah let's uh let's jump into our discussion then so Tonight, actually, before uh, we... So there are two major things, as I said, that I really want to talk about tonight. One is the romance of, An- of Andreth and Agnor, uh, which is a major plot line, a uh, very significant plot line uh, in this season. Um, and we should get to that. But first, I, I, I feel like I've been dragging along the discussion of like the genealogies and the timeline for a really long time. Uh, and I think we should kind of... Now that we've discussed all of the houses and we've kind of clarified some of those things. Um, I think that we should try to see if we can make some firmer decisions here about how we're going to represent things. Um, So I wanted to work with, um, where did it go? I've lost all my other windows. Well, not all of them. I suspect I know where some of them are. Uh, Let's see. Okay. Where's that other window? Darn it. I can't find anything. Okay, there it is. Okay. Excellent. So, the uh, family trees. So, Marie did some uh, very thoughtful work here, kind of condensing uh, and making some alterations in some of the family trees. Um, I think that I do want to compress 
things. I think it's going to, you know, as we were talking about the timelines, we, you know, we talked a bit about the timelines last time and thinking about the House of Bayor and how that story was going to unfold. Um, and I think it's going to be too long. I think that Bayor and or Andreth both will have to be too old uh, if we... Um, uh, if we stretch it out to the full 150 years, I think that we can compress it. The place where I would want to compress it, I mean, as far as like where do we change the dates, uh, would be in the front half, right? If we if we move uh, Bayor's arrival and therefore the death of Bayor uh, up a little uh, later uh, than they are in the t- in the text, the death of Bayor is, as I recall, 310. Uh, in the book, and three, uh, 455 is the Dagor Bragalak. So that's the 145-year span. Uh, well, no, sorry. No, sorry, 310 is the meeting, right, between Finrod and Bayor. Sorry, I'm getting... I'm, I'm already screwing up my dates. I've only just begun, and I've already begun to screw them up. Um, but um, uh, anyway, okay, yeah. So um, Nick agrees that compression is the best way to keep our focus on our primary characters while still making their connections clear. Nick, that's exactly the reason why I want to compress them. I don't want um, people to lose sight. So, I mean, there are two two ways that we could play it, right? On the one hand, having, like, several semi-faceless generations go by is one way to um, convey the fact that the humans are like mayflies, right? And, uh, and, you know, that time is passing faster for them than it's passing for the elves. Um, But I don't think... um, I don't think that that's a really effective. I don't think it's a very compelling way to do it. I think it's much better to invest in the lives of a few of the human characters that we're really that we can really expect, um, you know, the audience of the show to connect with, um, and then and 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 have because the, the whole like the thematic focus is going to be on change, right? This is not the passage of time and the way in which time passes differently for men compared to elves. It's not like something incidental that we need to somehow convey, right? It's the major theme of the entire season. People are going to be talking about this a lot. Uh, and so therefore we don't really have to go out of our way to draw attention to that. So even if we do compress the time, a hundred years is plenty of time, plenty of time in which to have our primary action take place and um uh and uh, uh and and show people aging and uh and show the different sort of issues and perspectives there um okay so Marie, how long do i want them to live in nargathrond it doesn't have to be that long um do i want it to be 100 years no it can be less than 100 years i'm fine if it's less than 100 years Beor dies of old age in Nargothrond. Um, but he's only living, what, half his life? Um, at most, half his life in Nargothrond? And it doesn't have to be too long after the death of Beor that they leave, right? I mean, even if it's, say, 50 years, right? 50 years. Um, if there are 50 years, then there will be people who will remember it. Um, who remember, you know, who, who came and left. Maybe 50 years is too little. 70 years? Like, basically, we don't want too many people to have, you know, strong memories of the days before they came to Nargothron, have lived through the whole Nargothron circumstance and come out the other side. Um, uh, 
Yeah. Yeah, Stephen, it's true. People can age in 100 years. Uh, sorry, I didn't uh, uh, Spoilers there. Um, will Bayor die before Andreth is born? Yes. Yes. Yes, they will. Um, yes, they will. Um, Bear will die before Andreth uh, is born. I'm fine. I would be fine with that. Um, let's look. So this is the this is the the genealogy that Maurice, the sort of compressed genealogy that Marie suggested. Uh, the shaded in bits up here, the box is basically stuff that you know, people that happen off stage, essentially people who are not going to be major characters. Um, which seems fine to me. Beor is old enough as a leader uh, that he can have a son and grandson living, you know, when he moves in uh, to Nargothrond and they never have to be major figures. If he, he sort of lives long enough, his son doesn't ever really uh, kind of take over. Um, uh, again, n- neither of them, neither his son nor his grandson need to be major characters. Um, so this genealogy has the two generations after Beor happening essentially off stage. Um, uh, and um, uh, then we've got Boromir. So this has Andreth, still has Andreth as a pretty distant relation of Beor. That is, she's still four generations removed from Beor. Beor is what, her great-grandfather here? So in this genealogy, she is born... With 24 years after the death of Beor. Okay. Um, oh, great, great. Yes, you are so correct. Great, great grandfather. Great, great grandfather. That feels. Hmm. That's far. It could work. I mean, having Beor. If. If essentially the torch is being passed in the house of ba- on screen, right? As far as the on screen experience of um, the viewers is concerned, if their experience with the house of Bayor is essentially sort of the the narrative torch passing from Bayor to Andreth, um, that's a it's a it's a fairly big jump. But I'm not sure I dislike it. I mean, there are two things about it that I like. One thing that I like about that is that if Beor is a great great, right? Uh, if he's gonna, if, if we're gonna spend the last, say, two thirds of the season at least or more uh, remembering Beor as like you know ancient history, right? You know, if Andreth, who's going to be our major human character for the majority of the season, is remembering back to old Beor as her great great grandfather, that puts it back a bit. Right, and it gives Beor a kind of uh, aura of venerability and antiquity, which I think is kind of is kind of nice. Um, uh, that he would be, I don't know. It, it gives Beor something almost like the standing, a, a, a standing that's kind of reminiscent of the standing of the old Took. Almost right, this kind of patriarchal figure um, who is famous for being old um, and who is like you know the head of the genealogy, and everybody's kind of related to him. Um, and uh, 
that kind of works for me. Like, what for the later generations of our story, Andreth and Barahir and Baron, right? What Beora was, you know, to them. Um, so that's one thing that I kind of like about the separation, though it's a further separa- separation than I was initially thinking of. The second thing that I like about it is that it does introduce the idea of a gap. And that's why I'm totally fine with Andreth being born after Beor is dead. I don't think they have to overlap because essentially I'm thinking of them as they're the two narrative turning points of the story of the house of Beor, right? Beor is the one who makes the choice to bring them to Nargothrond and, and initiate the whole elf and human living together experiment, right? Andreth is going to be the one who says, yeah, no, this, um, this isn't going to work. Uh, we really need to make a change here, and she's going to initiate the shift. Um, I um, the idea again of some kind of gap, which may feel like a vagueish gap. We don't. I don't think we ever need to really acknowledge on screen the exact passage of time. Um, I don't know that we need, you know, to be putting dates up. Uh, you know, on the bottom of the screen when we're starting places and stuff. I don't know that we need to track things as long as that. But if it's clear that it's been multiple... I mean, she can refer to him as her great-great-grandfather, like time has passed, right? Um, and not just that, but that sense of like, and now a new generation has arisen, right? That this is, you know, the the people of Andreth's generation and even the generation before her are, you know, those who really have have no idea, right? They, they, they are coming at this from an entirely different perspective uh, than Beor was, uh, and he would have been. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Now, Florian says, on the one hand, Beor's the one who moved them into Nargothrond and Andreth moves them away, but with how much time has passed and worsening living conditions, you could see Andreth is doing what he did long ago, leading her people to a better place. Yeah, I like the parallelism there, that she becomes, in a sense, she's like the second Beor, right? Um, and there should be some deliberate parallelism in the choices that Beor made and that Andreth made, right? But the difference is that Andreth is making the choice with the advantage of additional experience, Right. Um, sh- her choice is a choice of greater wisdom because uh, she has the benefit of seeing what happened. Right. Be- Beor wasn't dumb to do what he did. Neither Beor nor Finrod. It wasn't a bad idea on paper. Right. It seemed like a good idea. Both of them. Uh, but them meaning Finrod and the people of Beor collectively. Right. Needed to experience what it would be like. They had no way of anticipating the ways in which it would go bad. They didn't understand each other well enough to know that. Um, that's, uh, yeah. Now, Nick, let's address this other question that you're uh, pointing to, uh, which I agree is an issue that we probably shouldn't ignore, but I don't see it as a serious obstacle at the end of the day. And that is, why is it that the people of Bayor should listen to a 20-year-old kid? Because that's basically what we're talking about. Andreth leading them out when she's young. Um, you know, as Nick says, like college age, essentially. One thing that I, of course, would remind everybody of is that the idea that the age of 20 is extremely young and immature is kind of a modern concept, right? Uh, 20-year-olds, 
You don't have to go back too many centuries to find the times when 20-year-olds would were considered to have been adults for many years already, right? So um, unless you're a hobbit, again, Stephen H., I, I agree with that. Um, but... Um, uh, but anyway, so again, Nick, I'm not I'm not objecting to the fact that it's a question that we need to address, and I think that we can even work it into the story in some ways. All we would need to do is to have some resistance, right? Um, if there's somebody who is a voice of dissension, which seems like it would might be a good idea anyway, right, to have somebody be a voice of dissension to this move, um, that person could be an older and wiser person, right? Um, who are well, an older and wiser looking person, right? Somebody who would seem like a more likely leader. Um, but I don't think it's at all strange uh, or need be strange. I don't think it's an insuperable barrier at all uh, that they would follow her. I think it's, I think that that's in many ways, this is a trope that we can resist. I think in some interesting ways. Andreth the thing that to me makes Andreth's character so compelling, compelling as like a storyteller, right? As we're trying to work through this story, Andreth does not fit the molds. There are so many molds that Andreth doesn't fit, right? Um, she's going to be a leader, but she's not going to be an action leader, right? She's not going to, we're never going to see Andreth slay anything, right? Um, she's going to be a strong leader without being a warrior woman. Um, we already have that. We already have a warrior woman, strong leader. We're not going to have another one. Right. So she's going to lead by wisdom. She's going to lead by wisdom uh, and by the, the sort of the, the 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 power of her presence. Right. And the 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 clarity of her mind. She is going to be an intellectual leader. Despite the fact that she is a young woman and that is going to be counter to many expectations. You're not used to. I mean, it is not normal Right, it is not very usual uh, for dramatic productions to depict young women leading with their minds. That's just not this. That's not the. That's not the the normal trope, right? But I like that. Um, I think that there's uh, a lot that's really that's really good there. Um, and Marie, I do agree. It's not going to be hard for us to fit this into the culture of the House of Beor. Andreth's type of leadership probably wouldn't fly among the Haladim, or even among uh, those who will be the House of Hador, right? Um, they are different. They have become different in some bad ways and in some good ways, right? But many of the good ways, as we were uh, talking about, and Marie, exactly as you're suggesting here, they're not going to be led by a warrior leader. That's not going to be the tradition of the House of Beor anymore. They are going to be led by, as Marie says, Council of the Wise types. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, okay. Um, so, Stephen H. wants to know how would she quell, quell dissent? By debate. Uh, by demonstrating to them uh, why the course of action that she is suggesting is better and wiser than what they are suggesting. You know, th there would be a debate and she would win the debate is basically what I, I, that's kind of how I think it would go down in the House of Beor. I mean, it's not like she's going to, you know, it's not like they're going to have a trial by combat or something like that. The House of Beor wouldn't do it. Um, uh yeah, I think that she's going to be, 
here's where I am glancing ahead. I don't want to cover this yet because I want to focus on it when we do. But glancing ahead to the romance story, Andreth, I think, should be an obvious prodigy in the House of Bayor, right? Somebody who, like, from her earliest youth, everybody could tell, like, this this girl is brilliant, right? Um, she will have been groomed um, for leadership from because everybody can see. She has, like, the sharpest mind that they've seen in generations. And that's what they respect most. They're a bookish people, the House of Bayor now. Um, so, um, uh, okay. But here's where I see this fitting into the story later on. Everybody sees Andreth. And Andreth is like, she's head and shoulders above everybody else. She's just smarter than everybody else. She's more eloquent than everybody else. It's not Fanor speech and Tyrion, Marie, as you say. She's not going to be, you know, swaying the people to uh, take up and follow her right away. It's not going to be just her rhetoric. It's going to be her her reason, right? Um, and, um, uh, yeah. So, she, anyway... We set her up as I say, as she is, she is, she is a prodigy um, that everyone is really, really impressed by, um, and she, she has the be- they, they follow her plan, not because of who she is, but because it's the best plan, and she's able to show that it's the best plan, and they're convinced that it's the best plan. That's how the House of Bayor rolls these days, right? Um, and so. Here's how it connects to the love story, though. She's, you know, head and shoulders, like everyone is in awe of Andreth, right? Then when she goes and she meets Ignor, she's in a different position now, right? Um, I think Andreth's character is going to be a really fascinating one to have a love story with. Um, and I, I don't know, I really look forward to that. Um, yeah, yeah. So anyway, um, Nick is asking, uh, who is opposing her? I don't know. Who do you want to oppose her? Uh, it doesn't, there doesn't even, if we wanted, it could be Finrod himself. I think originally that's what I was thinking, basically. I was imagining that it would be Finrod that she would chiefly have to convince. Um, and that basically her convincing of her people could basically happen sort of off screen and the, have the fix the primary drama on the question of whether or not the House of Beor is or is not going to depart in her discussion with Finrod about what would be best and her convincing him that, you know, your idea, it was a great idea. Um, you know, honestly, thanks and everything. Um, but it's not panning out for these reasons. And this is why, what would be best for us here. Um, so yeah, uh, that's how I was imagining it originally. If we want to show her kind of rising to, 
a kind of supremacy among her people, we could do that. I mean, we could give her a foil. We could give her a, you know, uh, that we could make a center of opposition. Um, but, um, yeah. I mean, the other thing, the other reason for why people would listen to her is because there are others who do, like Adenel, right? Adenel, I think, would play a really important role here. She is the wise woman of her people and has been for a long time, but she is a retiring wise woman, right, who would throw her weight behind Andreth. Um And everyone would need little more than that, would need little more than the obvious reasonableness and the strength of her arg- of Andreth's arguments, especially when backed by the full support of Adenel, who is not putting it forward on her own, but merely saying, you guys should listen to Andreth. She's young, but she's right, and she knows what she's talking about. Um, um, <laughs> Nick, you're asking me lots of questions. I just want to turn around and ask you. Nick says, how do we know Adenel by the time Andreth comes on the scene, though? I don't know. You tell me. How do we? I'm, I'm, I'm saying introduce Adenel. Why not? We had talked about that, right? Um, Adenel can be a link. We're into I'm into links. right? I'm into bridges across the gaps here. Right. What if Adenel is somebody that we meet? She could be young when Bayor's old. Right. And she's a bridge. From Bayor, from the Bayor time to the Andreth time, right? So we've got Bayor, you know, the the old regime of Bayor moving in, and we've got the new regime of Andreth moving out. And Adenel is sort of the link; she's the memory of the time that was and of the wisdom of Bayor. Uh, but she is also the trans, you know, urging the transition to the leadership of Andreth because she has both through her judgment and through uh, her wise insight that Andreth is the one that should be leading them. Um, so yeah, we've got time when Bayor's alive. While Bayor's alive and old, we can certainly have Adenel. There's no reason we couldn't have that. There's not that big of a gap in between uh, the two of them. Um, so uh, so that seems to be uh, uh, that seems to be that seems to be fine. Rhiannon says, "Will Andreth be the first to propose that they leave, or will she become the spokesperson of a Leave Nargothrond movement?" Rihanna, and that's the other thing that I would say, is I think that the other reason that she, um, that everybody listens to her is that what she's saying is what they all kind of want, basically. Um, the majority of people are like, they are ready to hear what she has to say. Um, they don't have, they're not, they're not really resistant to her arguments. Um, she is in this way speaking like the, the, you know, Speaking, articulating, and explaining, basically, what is the the general, like, mood and desire of her people. It's not to say there will be no dissenters at all, that everyone is 100% agreed on this, but I don't see why it shouldn't be the majority opinion. And that's why, again, I would rather, rather than raising up a dissenter among the other rest of the House of Beor and having there be strife, that Andreth has to overcome within the House of Beor. We could do that, but I would rather have the tension um, in the question of whether they leave be between her and Finrod um, and have her be, again, she is the spokesperson of her people. Um, yes, as Marie says, her people are, re- are restless. She is giving them direction and solving the problem. Exactly. It's not that she's coming to them and saying, hey, everybody, get off your butts and leave. She's the one who's like, everybody agrees there's a problem, 
right? She's the one who has the solution. And Adeno is like, listen to this solution from my apprentice here. She's young, but she knows what she's talking about. And everyone's like, yeah, that's what we should do. You're totally right. Um, uh, yeah. Um, okay. Um, Nick, give me solutions. Suggest solutions. Don't just point out problems. Tell me, how can we introduce Adeno? Explain. Think about it. You're creative. Figure it out. How can we introduce Adeno? It's an, ex- it's an excellent question. How do we do it? Now, I don't think she needs to be a kid at the beginning. I don't think she has to be. A, remember, there's only 24 years between the death of Beor uh, and uh, the arrival of, of Andreth, right? And Adeno is not exactly the most major character in the season, right? So all we need, she can be a full-grown adult, even a middle-aged adult at the time of Beor's death, right? Um, so that she really is like the memory of the old. She remembers very well, uh, you know, the days under Beor. Um, was she a kid when they moved in? Maybe she was, right? Maybe she even has a memory or two of life beforehand or something like that. Um, but, uh, um, but yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So Nick, exa- Nick says we have to be telling stories about Adonel that showcase her wisdom before we get to Andreth. Agreed. The opportunity for that, I think, would be the funeral of Beor, right? We can show her sort of position of leadership among the people. Um, we can show her and Finrod interacting at and around and after the funeral of Beor. She can be the one who is sort of speaking to, uh, you know, Finrod is going to have some moments, right? Obviously moments with, uh, uh, with uh, his, you know, bromance partner Beor on Beor's deathbed. Um, but Adonel is going to be the one to sort of kind of carry on from there. Her position can be established, in the Death of Beor episode, I think that seems to me fairly clear. And then all we have to do is to show her still alive but older uh, later on when it's time to leave, when it's time for to introduce Andreth, right? And now she's got her, you know, wise woman Padawan at her side, right? Um, so that seems to be uh, uh, not again not not a not an impossible uh, uh, an impossible task there. Um, Stephen is wondering, does uh, would wise woman be a descriptive title or is it a title that gives her authority? Hmm. Uh, um, I would be fine if essentially the position... If Adana were even in a semi-official position of authority after the passing of Beor, I mean, if the leadership, in as much as there is exactly leadership of the House of Beor, passes from Beor to Adana to Andreth, and then Andreth deliberately passes it to Bari here, as we discussed last time, uh, when they move up to Dorthonian, um, you know, she sort of abdicates uh, essentially. It's like a, a you know a planned succession, right? A planned abdication on her part, as she foresees the shift uh, in their in their peoples. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly, Nick. They don't really need leaders, um, as Nick says. They only need like a judicial structure or something, someone to resolve disputes. Exactly, a wise, you know, 
the wise person, right, that you can go to 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 seek guidance from and to to settle disputes and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, so for her to be in that kind of uh, position, um, it could even be sort of not really official. I don't even know that there has to be a title. I don't think she'd have a hat, you know, that she wears or like, and like, you know, she wouldn't have to necessarily have any signs of office or anything like that. Um, she would just be the one that everybody goes to and we could make that clear, right? You know, however we want to make it clear, it doesn't exactly have to be like, uh, you know, at the end of the death of Beor's episode, you know, at the end of the episode, the door is closing and you're seeing all the house of Beor gathering around to kiss uh, Adonel's ring. You know, it's it's doesn't have to be like that. Um, but again, to sort of show that she has this kind of uh, respect. That's what really <laughs> no, think of the Godfather. She has to have the respect of her people. Right. Um, and. um and it could become something that sort of that becomes sort of semi-official over time um, so that there would be. So when Adonel is kind of anointing Andreth, essentially, right, and t- telling everybody to listen to her, she could be even sort of semi-officially, you know, we, we could even have her. Maybe she does have some kind of trapping of office. Maybe by the time she's old, Adonel, that is, you know, when we see her again, um, uh you know, with, with, with Andreth, maybe she's got, I don't know, like a stole or something like that, that she wears. Uh, uh, and she like puts it on Andreth or something to have a, a sort of a visible passing of the torch that she's doing when she says to everybody, like, listen to her, she knows her, you know, when everybody, or, or maybe afterwards when everybody says, yeah, you know what? She's right. This is the solution. This is what we need to do. And there might be some people who would be like, I don't know, lead us. And she's like, mm, no, no, Andreth, she's the one who should be reading and she takes off the stole and puts it on her. Maybe something like that. Um, uh, I think that's. Uh, yeah, yeah. Rihanna was thinking maybe a sign of office would be a, a good way to make that clear. Yeah. So m- maybe we do something. I don't know. Stole hat stick. I don't know. W- 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 whatever you are. For, for some reason, a stole is the first thing that occurs to me. I don't know why, but um yeah, some kind of some kind of official mantle. Um, ideally, it would be something that could then be passed on to Barahir, but changed. Right? It wouldn't be the same. And Andreth would not only pass it on, but she would transform it in some way, in order visibly to acknowledge to the people that the kind of leadership that their people have now or need now is of a different kind. Maybe it could be some kind of a pendant that then gets made into Barahir's ring or something. Oh, could it be connected with the ring? Mm. That's what I was thinking. Well, the ring is going to... Like, I don't know if... Was the ring ever described? I mean, because I was thinking well, about yeah, it. No, I mean, the ring is des- the ring is described, but no, I mean, the, the ring comes from from Finrod, uh, mm, so it okay. it's going to come from Finrod later on. But I'm wondering if it could be if there could be a connection. I want to I want to link it to the ring. I mean, I like the cool. idea of linking yeah. it to the ring. Um, yeah. I'm wondering, I'm wondering if there's there's just some component that could then That's what be I was thinking. transmogrified it into Finrod, the ring. Though, you know, I mean, there even could be some connection. 
you yeah. know, that somehow Andreth to Finrod to Barahir. I don't mean the ring itself, but right. I don't know. Yeah, it's... Um, yeah, I don't know. So I'm thinking... Okay, so I like the idea of like a stole or something. Uh, the other thing that's nice about a stole is that it's a very peacetime kind of like no warrior king would wear a stole like that they're super impractical in battle stoles you know um you just wouldn't wear them into combat and so she couldn't just pass it down and be it would have to be altered it would have to be changed into something else uh yeah marie that's what i was wondering if um uh if there could be some design that was linked. That's what I was thinking about the link to the ring. Um, uh, uh, like Marie was suggesting if there are like serpents on the stole or something. Um, of course, serpents also associated with wisdom. So that's kind of an interesting. Well, yeah, it could, yeah, a design, like a design that could be right. carry through. Right. It could be a exactly. thing. That's a really good idea, Marie. Yeah. And if he, um, My my biggest issue with any like actual connection with the rings are rings are hard to do on screen, right? You can't see a ring from a distance. Like you can you can have close ups of like a ring on somebody's hand, but you've got to do a cut to the ring, you know, in order to make to see it. You know, you can't. Uh, I mean, this was a constant. I mean, think of all the super close ups that we get of the ring. Uh, you know, think of all those like detailed detailed shots of like. You know, the lines in Elijah Wood's palm that you get, you know, in the Lord of the Rings films, because you've got to like, you know, you, you nobody can see a ring from a distance. Um, uh, so. Yeah. I think. Uh, well, see, no, Nick, I would think it wouldn't be a coincidence. I would think that the if there were a, 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 a sort of a formal stole that were given to Adonel as a, a sort of a symbol of her authority, um, of her wisdom and authority, which had serpents on it, which would be an homage to the House of Finrod, because why wouldn't they do an, an homage to the House of Finrod, right? To his, uh, uh, I mean, we can easily show, and indeed, I think we certainly should show the ring on Finrod's hand, at the beginning, like, you know, from, you know, we should, we should, this, this should come up several times. Right. Um, and, uh, so they're, you know, cause they're kind of, they've been adopted, right? I mean, the house of Beor has been, they're like, on, they're like the, the adopted children of the house of, of, of Finway or of Finrod rather. Right. So, um, uh, yeah, yeah. So we can, um, we can do that. Uh, and then, And then the ring, it's, when he, Barahir, receives the ring itself, it can be sort of the this sort of, uh, you know, it can be closing, you know, the arc of these symbols and stuff. Um, yeah. I like this idea a lot. Okay. All right. Um, yeah, he gets something like a matching equipment buff. That's exactly what I'm thinking, Nick. That's that's precisely that's pre- precisely the point. Right, a set piece. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. They, yeah, 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 yeah. He gets <laughs> plus 500 down. morale if he wears both the ring and the stole. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, the stole could be transformed into something else. 
you know, like a cloak or, uh, you know, he can tie it around his head like Rambo or something. A I don't banner. Know. Uh, a banner. A banner. Yeah, a banner. Yeah. Yes, perhaps. Um, um, the Yeah. Well, anyway, we'll um, we'll we'll see. We'll see. Um, OK, yeah. So, Marie, exactly. The leadership of the House of Beor would be in this construction. Beor to Adonel to Andreth to Barahir to Baron. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, okay. Uh, yeah, so no, Florian, um, Bri- uh, Barahir would not be the wise man thing. The whole point is that when Andreth passes it on, she transforms it because Andreth is wise and she understands the House of Bear needs to change, right? They, she, they, they have chosen to move on purpose to Dorthonian, right? They are moving up to, uh, closer to the front lines. They are going to take an active role uh, in what is going on and in helping the effort against Morgoth because Andreth was just part of her solution, right? She believes they need a purpose. They need to play a role. They are wasting their lives here in Nargothrond in, in, in ways and in senses in which the elves are not. The elves can afford to wait for centuries. The humans cannot do so. They need to be part. They either need to be part of this story or to find a different story of their own. Um, And so they're going to move to the front lines, which means they're going to change. And they're going to have some time to change when they're up there. But that's so her passing her abdication when it comes is not because she's too old and it's not because she's like insufficiently wise. She is wise enough to know that they don't anymore just need a wise woman judge. They need an active leader who is going to be, uh, who is going to be their leader in battles and enterprise, their protector. Um, they need a different kind of leader. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, Rhiannon points out that if it were changed into a banner, then it could go down in flames dramatically during the Dagor Bragalak, which is an appealing idea, Rhiannon. That's what I was thinking. If you make it a banner, it would go into battle. Yeah. You know how yeah. you were saying it's not, It's you know, a mantle isn't uh, a, a warlike thing, but then it could transform into a warlike thing. Yeah. I like that. If instead of a stole, it's like a, a cloak... Right, that she wears, like, or like a cape right. or something, like you know, something like a cloak or cape that she wears around her shoulders that can be a different color uh, from what most of the, you know, the people of the House of Bay are usually wear, um, you know, like moody charcoal colors or whatever <laughs> they wear in Nargothrond, whatever the kids in Nargothrond are wearing these days, um, uh, and and then that you know it, it's it's made into a it's made into a banner, something like that. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And as Nick points out, banners are indeed easier to see from a distance than a ring. Yes. Famously easy to see from a distance are banners, right? Absolutely. Um, now, it is true, Stephen, that we could do a similar thing if if the sign was instead a staff, then the staff could be, like, made into the banner pole of the, you know, of the, of the House of Bayor. Um, so you could do a similar kind of thing there, but I kind of like the fabric thing, especially since I like the serpent set. Uh, that's kind of, that's kind of appealing to me here. Um, but, um, okay. So yeah. So that overall shape works for me. Um, 
the uh, so uh, uh, on uh, Marie's uh, genealogy here, the people in bold are the people who who will appear in episodes, and the people who are in regular print. Uh, the p- people who are in italics are the people who don't have aren't named at all uh, in the text, i.e., mostly the women, and uh, those who appear but they don't. You know, the 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 ones who are not in bold are the ones who. Um, uh, d- are not um, wouldn't appear wouldn't be a character in an episode. Um, I know that serpents and staffs can go together. It's kind of to avoid the Moses thing that I was thinking. Maybe not a serpent on a staff, actually. Uh, um, though, I mean, a certain delight in playing on the pun of a fiery serpent in the context of Glaurung is a little appear, uh, a, a little appealing, have to confess, but I don't think I want to go there. Um, so, uh, anyway, yeah. Um, uh, Bregor, yeah, Bregor can die in the Dagor Bragalak. We wanted, we wanted some folks to die, uh, in the battle. So there you go. You can have Bregor, uh, who can die. Um, so uh, Endrith brother, right? So he's someone whom we will have seen. He won't be a major character. Um, uh, but he's someone that we will, uh, that we will have seen. Um, uh, yep. Yeah, so that's that's fine. We will have other people who can die also. I mean, there's going to be plenty of. Uh, well, I guess I sh- I guess we should be careful because there are going to be a fair number of people who are going to. So we do need to make sure we lose enough named characters in the Dagor Bragalock to make it feel like a complete disaster. Um, so. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay. Um, and of course, we're going to lose uh, both Ignor and Angrod, so that's something. Um, yeah. All right. Okay. Looking at genealogies, for, again, sort of condensed genealogies, um, the primary emphasis, of course, is going to be on the first generation here. Um, this timeline sort of moves the timeline of the Haladin later. Um, uh, so that basically Haleth's, you know, the, the battle with the stockade and Haleth becoming the leader of her people would be happening uh, like 20 years after the um, death of Beor. Yeah, 10 years. 10 years after the death of Beor uh, by these genealogies. Um, so that makes Haleth contemporaneous, though a little older than Andreth. Um, uh, so I think that's that works for me. Again, we don't need much of her family. We need them to exist, right? We're going to need them for further genealogies and, and intermarriages down the road, but we're not going to need them as characters. The story of the Haladin in season five is the story of Haleth. I mean... I don't think we need the 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 stories of any of the other characters there. Um, so yeah, it's most. By the way, if they're if they're going to be near contemporaneous, are you thinking what I'm thinking? <laughs> what? Uh, we can need to have at least one Haleth Andreth scene. You know, they're going to be traveling from Nargothrond up, right? 
Could happen. Yeah. Could happen. Um, I kind of feel like we have to contrive to make it happen. We really need to, to have Andreth cool meet Halleth. Yeah. Even just for a, you know, a meeting with Halleth could help to inform Andreth of what like the options are. I mean, her idea of yeah. what they will need to learn. Uh, uh, even the the idea that that uh, that Haleth could be um, uh, that Haleth could be a a sort of example, like someone from whom she learns more about like the kind of leadership that's going to be needed out here in the cold hard world outside of Morgothrond. Yeah. yeah. Um, and. And actually, and you know what would be neat and interesting, especially because, because I think I think probably the um, the the you know most viewers' experience will be they'll probably come away from the Holith episodes feeling much the same way that a lot of people do about her, like you know admiration. Yeah. But I think it'd be neat if 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 Andreth like initially kind of also has that same like oh man what a great leader, but like at the end of the episode concludes that she's going to do things differently. Like maybe there's some lessons she takes away, but still right. ends up thinking like, right. yeah, but, but there's some things I'm going to do differently. Like Haleth isn't right. You know, Haleth's way isn't my way. Right. I mean, of course there's, I mean, there's the obvious correspondence, right? I mean, the house of Bayor and the house of Haleth are the yep. opposite poles, right? Of the human elf yeah. relationship spectrum. Um, so for Andreth as leader to be immediately introduced to, her polar opposite, essentially, right in Haleth, um, or at least Beor's polar opposite. Then uh, this kind of enables her to kind of you know. So she made the impassioned argument that we need to be separate. So you're right, Dave. She could basically leave Haleth and be saying, "Okay, but maybe not that separate, <laughs> right?" Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm not yeah. sure. Um, yeah, I think she. I think she would be. I think she would be. You're right because I think as someone who just just came away from like, you know, we were on the other end of the spectrum, but now we're leaving because we just decided that didn't work. Yeah. You would, you'd think that probably it would be natural to be enamored. Right. Of someone like, uh, of, of both the way that Hollis people are doing things, but also of like Haleth as sort of the role model leader that maybe Andreth wants to be. But it, but like the character growth would be toward the end. She sort of decides like, no, I need to, I need to, there's lessons to be learned, but I need to chart my own course. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think. Um, Make it happen, writers. Yeah. And I, 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 I do really like the idea. Um, and it, it's really an interesting way. I mean, we've been talking about the kind of conceptual roles that the different houses of the Adine can have in our sort of charting out the, the different you know, elements of this theme and the concept of how human and elves, uh, you know, can interact. Um, having the two of them meet like that would be a good way to bring that into focus a little bit more. Yeah, I like that. Now, Stephen, you're right. Stephen H. is pointing out that there are 44 years between Haleth and Andreth. Yeah. Stephen, I would still call that contemporaneous. I mean, in the sense that they're both alive at the same time is what I meant by that. Um I with 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 the human characters on this show, that's all we can hope for. Exactly. Are, are they both breathing air at the same time? If so, that's yeah. a win. Um, but besides, actually, I really like I really like that um, 
that dynamic, actually. Um, that, like, 20-year-old Andreth meets 65-year-old Haleth, you know, who is, uh, you know, aged but still tough and hard and still leading her people with an iron fist. Cool. Like, you know, that's... Uh, it helps us to see how, in a sense, she is seeing Haleth as... This is someone who has, like, gone to this one extreme, right? She has she yeah. has traveled down this particular path. In Haleth yeah, and, and in Haleth's current regime, Andreth would be seeing this is where, like, that that thinking leads, right? This is the end yeah. result of that thinking. Maybe it's – and it may not be necessarily a great thing. Like, like maybe Haleth um, later in life will be someone who, like, you see that it's really taken a toll. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And Haleth couldn't, I mean, I think, well, so, but here, Dave, here's the next question. What's Haleth's attitude uh-huh. to Andreth? I mean, does she just look at her as some like mealy mouthed, soft handed, you know, uh, city girl who doesn't know how to handle herself and has no idea what she's getting into? I mean, does she, is she patronizing towards her? I could imagine That's that. Like- that's a good question. Like I, I, I can kind of, I sort of imagine like two kind of two possible arcs, right? Like one would be that where it's, she views her as the mealy mouth sort of, you know, like, you don't know what you're doing out here. You can't make it. And then yeah. at the end comes away with a begrudging respect. Right. But then the other one that I'm kind of interested in is the one where she takes her under her wing. Cause she sees like, Hey, good for you. You got out, got out of there. Like you're doing the right thing. And then at the end, when Andreth kind of says, like, well, I'm not going to do things your way either, um, that she she resents that and rejects her. Right. And that it, that maybe their parting is is somewhat acrimonious. Um, yeah, possibly. Possibly. I mean, it's it's hard. We don't I, don't I feel like I don't want to push our viewers to feel like they have to, like, choose whether they're on Team Andreth or Team Holly, yeah. you know, at the end of the episode. But 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 I agree. I mean, I at the end of the day, I don't think that Holith is kind of on the same page with almost anybody else. Like, you know, no, yeah. it's like, yeah. it's her way or the road, you know I mean? There's, there's really, yeah, I, I, but I do agree, Marie. That's just what I'm thinking that we don't want our final view of Haleth to, to leave, you know, a bitter taste in the mouth. Um, I agree. Um, so yeah, we, know, yeah. we don't want her to look but bad, I, but it would be, it would be interesting to, I wonder if there's a way to do it because I, because, because the idea of some conflict and also like presenting kind of a more like, like making Haleth a really interesting, um, you know, kind of fleshing out that character and presenting like, you know, kind of the second take is, is when we see her from the point of view of another human character that we, we sympathize with that Haleth mm-hmm. this time around comes off as a little more like abrasive a little more like, you know, eh, maybe she's like, you know, then we reveal the flaws um, right. of her approach in right. sharper relief. But I, still, I think there's a way to like to resolve it at the end where like maybe their parting is a little is a little like bumpy. Um, right. But like but like there's some way to show visually or otherwise that like Haleth, you know, like Haleth is still satisfied. Like she disagrees with what Andreth has chosen to do and is annoyed that she's not doing things her way. But at the same time is like, is like satisfied that right. Andreth is taking charge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. No, I mean, there would, there would certainly be, um, 
I, I would think there would certainly be an element of respect, right? I mean, in a yeah. sense, right? Halleth, I think that, that would should be see... the parting. That yeah. should be like the feeling that people are left with. Like, you know, right. we're we're not we're not going to see eye to eye, but like, you know, but I, but right. I'm, I, you know, like, but I respect you. Um, I mean, there's got to be an element of of Halleth acknowledging the parallel, right? Like, here's another uh-huh. young yeah. woman leading this people on a migration, you know, through her own, you know, uh, uh, through the strength of her own will. There's got to be some element of, you know, uh, look, it's it's the young me, right? You know, she's got to, like, respect Andreth for that uh, in some way, right. though she might be puzzled, as you say, by the differences between them uh, and the whole kind of attitude of things. Um, yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it seems to me like, it seems to me like for Halef, um, that there, there would be some, there'd be some difficulty coming to grips with the person who like, you know, like you, with, with a person like her, who like, who is like her in the sense that they don't listen and want to think, go right. their own direction, right? right. Like Hala, I feel like because 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 the you know the when we talked about Haleth, um, we talked about somebody who like through sheer strength of will kind of compelled her people to do things and was like kind of a little authoritarian and mm-hmm. at times. Mm-hmm. So like if you have somebody who comes along who's like you know sort of she sees that glimmer of like strong leadership and thinks like ah oh, you know, like I like this person, but then then when it comes time when the rubber meets the road and it's like. That, but 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 that strength is going to manifest as defying Haleth herself. Like that doesn't seem like the sort of thing. Like it's the kind of thing that Haleth would struggle with, and maybe at right. the end would right. would would have a begrudging expect, respect for. But I don't think she'd like instantly be happy. Right. Right. Yeah. Possibly not. Uh, possibly not. It would be. It would be a challenge. Well, we'll see. I don't know how much time we'll get for. Uh, you know the meeting between the two, but I do think there's a lot of potential, uh, in that, uh, in yeah. that, in that concept. In, in that yeah, if we can't do it, can't do it, but it's fun to imagine. It is. It is fun to imagine. Okay. Well, let's, let's move on and think about the relationship then between Andreth and Ignor. Okay. So the first question, how do they meet? Do they meet in Nargothrond? I mean, Ignor could easily come visit Finrod, so we could easily have that happen. Or do they meet in Dorthonian after the House of Beor moves to Ladros? I, I feel pretty strongly that they should not meet until after the move. Um, mostly because the very last thing I would want to do to Andreth's character is permit even the glimmer of the suspicion that she's doing what she's doing with her people in order to get closer to her boyfriend. Right. Like she has a crush on this elf who lives far away. And so she's contrived to move her whole people to Dorthonian so she can spend more quality time with him. I'm not saying that our plot would look anything like that, but if anyone could even suspect that, right. If anyone could even make a plausible internet chat thread, uh, you know, in our, in our, uh, discussions, uh, you know, of our viewers after the fact, theorizing that I would hate it, right? Um, that I think would be terrible. So that's why I don't think I want them to be, you know, 
seeing each other across a room in Nargothrond, right, with Finrod an awkward third wheel <laughs> in that particular uh, room or something like that. Um, I And it wouldn't be hard for, you know, Ignor just not to happen to make it down to Nargothrond for 25 or 30 years, right? That's got to happen all the time, you, you got to think, with, uh, uh, with uh, Elven brothers. Um, so I think that um, we... Yeah. Now, so Nick says we have to also somehow um, avoid the perception of Andreth's relationship with Ignor being hypocritical. Well, yes, Nick, except I like the idea of its being ironic. Um, I like the idea of the kind of of Andreth herself being like basically her, her having made this argument for the need for humans and elves to be separate and to have their distance. And then after that, having established that, having convinced everyone, even Finrod of that, right? And set her people on that path. She now finds herself in this paradoxical personal attraction and relationship with Ignor. Um, it doesn't, it's not hypocrisy, right? It's not just mere inconsistency on her part. Um, but it is um it is ironic it is uh i like it <laughs> i like i like a lot about that um so anyway um yeah yeah okay so nick is thinking it's the future plans that could be a problem yeah yeah it could and honestly so, okay. What do... All right. Well, okay, let's... Before, okay, I was, I was going to say... I was going to think about the question, what are her goals for their relationship, right? Um, and I'm not sure of the answer to that question. But let's answer this other question first. What do Andreth and Ignor see in one another? What attracts Andreth to Ignor? What attracts him to her? I was just going to say that. I was going to say what attracts him to her. But see, that seems to me simpler. Because we've already established Andreth as this prodigy, right? She's brilliant. She's one of a kind, right? She is like the jewel of her whole generation, of multiple generations. So it's, it's kind of a reverse Luthien thing, huh? Yeah. 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 It can be a little bit proto-Luthien-esque on a different scale, right? Um, uh, yeah. She has there, you know, there is something about her. He would, I don't think, I mean, it's not going to be just like a physical attraction to her. Um, if he's not attracted to her for her mind, I don't know what else he would be attracted to her for exactly. Um, he could see her. I mean, yeah, I was thinking, I mean, what would be kind of Luthien-esque, but what would be Andreth would be her oratorial, you know, oratorial skills. Yeah. Say he sees her in some kind of audience or something. I don't know where she's presenting a thesis or a, you know, request right. or something like yeah. that. Yeah, I, I, I like Florian's idea. He says uh, she's probably the fastest learner he has ever seen. Um, 
that's actually really interesting because, I mean, it's one of the things that we were talking about in the context of our discussion of the laws and customs of, uh, among the Eldar in the Morgoth's Ring discussion on Wednesday nights. Um, how long it takes for elves to grow up um, and uh, the, the, the kind of deliberateness with which they learn things. And we talked about that some, of course, last time in talking about the, the issues with the House of Beor and Nargothrond, um, that she that she would uh uh her the swiftness of her mind um would perhaps be sort of uh uh startling to him cuz it's so very different from how even intelligent elves act like it's her but even her wisdom and her intelligence would be of a different kind like it's got there's got to be something Ignor and Andreth have to be attracted to each other, not despite the fact that they are different races, but because they're different races. It is the humanness of Andreth and the elvishness of Ignor that attracts them to each other. They perceive the differences between the outlooks of the mortal race and the immortal race, right? And yet those differences are what attract them. Right. Um, Andreth would be fascinating to him because, yes, she's smart, but he's met smart. people. Yes, she, you know, she can be pretty. I agree. She could be pretty, Marie. Though, wouldn't it be kind of interesting if she weren't? What if she were not very attractive physically? I mean, what if she were like Hollywood plain? Right. Maybe. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's possible. It's okay. I, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not like, I'm not against her being physically attractive, but, um, um, but, but at anyway. a minimum Hollywood plane, Hollywood plane. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I don't think she has to be gorgeous. Like, I don't think she has to be incredibly straight. I don't think he has to see her from, you know, and be like Tanuvia, Tanuvia. Like, I don't think that should be the premise of his attraction to her. Um, even if only because, I mean, look, let's face it. There are very few of the, you know, human women living the kinds of lives that human women these days are living, right? Um, who are going to be like head and shoulders more attractive than elvish women, right? I mean, it's just, he's seen beautiful before. That's not what's going to, you know, make him step back. But there will be things not only about her level of intelligence and the, the, the sort of agility of her mind, but of the, the, the kind of mind that she has, the way that she thinks, would be refreshing and new and startling and different and fascinating to him. Because she's human, right? Because she doesn't think about things the way that, uh, uh, the way that he does. Um, and is always surprising her uh in 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 that way um exactly nick nick says zero percent chance she's as pretty as the top four quintiles of elvish women i mean and, but not 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 to mention like i mean ignore has met luthien right i mean i'm sorry like you know he's not going to be like she's the most beautiful woman i've ever met like she like literally can't be you know that's that's ruled out uh so so yeah um so anyway um Okay, so that is what I imagine Ignor being attracted to in Andreth. 
What is Andreth attracted to in Eignor? She has known elf lords before too, right? She knows Finrod. She's been interacting with Finrod all of her young life. Um, she was just like correcting Finrod, right? She just like, you know, had that turning moment when she, you know, that, that turning point moment uh, when she convinced Finrod of what was the best course of action. Um, so not only does she not, does she, is she used to hanging out with elves all the time in Nargothrond, she also, and for that reason, does not live in awe of them. It, you know, you know, so she wouldn't be like, oh, wow, look at him, right? What a noble, dashing elf lord he is. Um, there's got to be something about him. Um, yeah, exactly, Marie. Her relationship with Finrod would be platonic and professional. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and she would know Ignor is Finrod's brother, right? So she would, like, you'd think that she would kind of contextualize him, she would already have a framework in which to contextualize him, right? That by default, she would think going in of her relationship with Ignor as being parallel to her relationship with Finrod, right? She's not going to have a paradigm for that. Um, so for her to fall in love with Ignor would have to be a thing that kind of sneaks up on her, right? That she doesn't... I guess I don't think... I, I, I don't see... I certainly don't see... Andreth falling in love with Ignor being a love at first sight thing. I could imagine the other way around. Not at first sight, but at first conversation, maybe. Right? After their first exchange, she, she surprises him, and he is kind of fascinated uh, by, you know, her mind and her talk. Um, so he can be, like, at least a little bit smitten with her from their very first conversation. But I don't think she would be. Would she? Um... I don't know. Um, one of my problems is I don't have any clear idea of Ignor, really, as a character. Because he's been certainly in the lower tier of, you know, his generation of Noldor, as far as our story is, is concerned, as far as the development of characters in film film so far. Um, uh yeah, Michael, I agree. Michael Dennis says she's the one who would need a little more time, which is ironic, right? Yeah, I love the irony of that. I love the irony of, you know, the elf being the one to leap uh, uh, to this, uh, uh, you know, into this infatuation and the human being like, let's take this slowly, <laughs> right? I mean, that's funny. Come on, that's funny. That, that, that would be really interesting. Um, Rhiannon suggests she could admire Ignor's dedication to actively fighting Morgoth. Yes, I mean, she does. He could be her kind of introduction. To, so, I mean, how would they meet? Well, how they would meet would be easy enough, right? I, 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 uh, that is, Finrod would surely have communicated with his brothers, saying like, hey, okay, uh, House of Beor, they're moving out. Um, they're going to get their own place. Um, I... But uh, they're coming up to your neighborhood, so if you wouldn't mind looking in on them and kind of, they're going to need some help because honestly, they don't even know how to survive in the big world out there. So if you wouldn't mind, 
you know, looking out for them. Uh, absolutely, Nick. Ignor would help them get settled. So that Ignor would come seems fine. Uh, I mean, that seems obvious that he would do that at Finrod's request and even stay for some time, right? That there would be um, a prolonged period in which he's dwelling among them um, on very different terms, obviously. I, I mean, you know, so this is not them living with the elves. This is one elf coming and visiting them and stay, staying around and helping to advise them and everything. That doesn't seem like it would be, you know, again, hypocrisy from her original stand. Um, uh Florian and Marie were both suggesting maybe Ignor is is really funny. You know, maybe it's um you know, the House of Beor can be like a very kind of bookish and solemn people. I was like kind of joking about them all wearing charcoal gray, but maybe I'm not joking. Maybe that's kind of their character, you know? Um and Ignor is just I uh, like flamboyantly sort of full of life in ways that she's not used to seeing. You know, remember Finrod um, Finrod is is wise and generous and uh, caring, um, thoughtful of others, but he's also you know I mean there's like tragedy hanging over him. There's tragedy hanging over all the Noldor. I know, but um, you know maybe. But he's not a party animal, Marie. Exactly, Finrod not exactly a party animal. Um, maybe Ignor surprises her. Uh, because he's so different from his brother. Um, and he's, yeah, maybe he's just fun uh, uh, in, you know, ways that she's not used to. I don't think we have, Stephen H., I don't think we have established Ignor's. I don't remember establishing Ignor's personality. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah, Stephen Cover says it would be refreshing to see a character with a good sense of humor portrayed as something other than mere comic relief. Yeah, it kind of would, wouldn't it? Um, yeah, laughter and good spirits? Exactly. That would be fun. And of course, extra tragic when he dies, right? So bonus for that. Um, that's that's good. Um, uh, yeah. That could be good by itself. Maybe she doesn't need any other reason. Maybe she just... And But of course, the other nice thing about this is that that kind of relationship, like that kind of attraction, the kind of attraction that grows from just really enjoying his company, right, um, is the kind of thing that could sneak up on her much... Like, that's a, that, that's a sneakier kind of beginning of a relationship, right? Um, the kind of thing where, like, he goes you know, away for a while. Um, and she's like shocked at how much she misses him. And like, that's the point where she's like, holy cow, don't you tell me like, <laughs> no way I can't actually be in love with like, uh, you know, the junior elf Lord over there, like, you know, uh, Finrod's brother, like, no. Um, um, yeah, yeah. Um, that would be, an interesting way. Yeah, you're right. Having her be kind of resistant to the whole idea of being in love with him would be especially interesting given her, you know, bitterness in the Athrobeth. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because it took her a while to tumble to it, right? Right, And she right. would have resisted it for a while, but then she kind of gives into it, and then he says no, right? Even though he's been the one who's been kind of initiating, 
in a sense, right? Not, he's not crossing any lines. You know, I mean, he's not like uh, uh, putting the moves on her or something like that, right? I mean, this is, uh, uh, you know, he keeps their relationship totally appropriate and everything, but it's clear that he likes her, right? It's clear that he is interested in her. Um, and she would even be aware of the fact that, like, she is, like, re- you know, reciprocating, essentially. Um, I would not even be shocked to see that sh- that he understands his own feelings for her before she understands his feeling, her feelings for him. Um, and we can have a conversation with that. Angrod, of course, presents himself uh, as an obvious person for him to have this conversation with one way or the other. Um, and, um, uh, or, or Finrod can come visit, right? I mean, we're going to need him up once or twice, uh, cause we want to maintain him and we want to keep him involved. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no, Stephen H., I absolutely agree that she feels scorned in the Athrobath. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, but, um, yeah, so, so yeah, I agree. Ignor I, I, um, would explain the unspoken law about elves not raising families during wartime. But see, again, this is what I love about the role of the relationship of Andreth and Ignor in season five, right? One of the primary dynamics of season five is having our characters on screen coming to grips in different ways, different circumstances, and in varying different, to varying different extents and from different angles of like what it means to be human and Elvish, right? The, the differences between them. We want, times, I think that we will succeed if our viewers have their minds blown at various points, right? If either, like, in some places, elves look like Martians, right, when we're kind of coming at it from the human point of view, and other places where the humans look like Martians, if we're coming at it from the elvish point of view. Um, And to sort of show the difference, because there are some really important big-picture differences in how they look at things, right? So... The thing with Andreth and Ignor that I find so cool is that they can come together at first because of those differences, right? It's because of the perception of those differences and the appreciation of those differences and the respect for each other that grows through those differences, right? It's because they're, it's their differences that bring them together, but it's also their differences that are going to keep them apart. And she is going to resist that and she's going to resent that. Right. This is why she gets in her elder years. Um, she becomes kind of a uh, what would be the word if. Uh, 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 I'm trying to think of what the equivalent of a of uh, like a misanthrope would be for elves. Uh, if a misogynist is someone who hates women, what would be someone who hates elves? Uh, my, uh, uh, my uh, not really sure. My Zeldrin, my Zel, my Zofanist, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. That sounds like somebody who hates Feanor, Stephen. I'm not sure. Um, ha, Stephen H says a Numenorian. Ha, but don't, 
Very good. No. Um, <laughs> but anyway, I don't know. But, and, but it, I mean, she's almost, I mean, she's, she's a little toxic towards elves in, in, you know, at the time of the Athrobeth. It's one of the things that Finrod has to overcome, right? Um, so to see her go from perception of difference and like, you know, I love you for the ways that you're different. And then he's like, oh yeah, but of course, like, obviously we can't get married or anything. You know, we can't, like, we can't be together. Um, because, like, obviously, like, it, it's not done. It can't be done now because it's a time of war. And she would not get that at all. Ooh, Matt Duke suggests uh, Mais Quendist. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> uh, uh, anyway, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Florian says, why can't they marry but Oradreth could? Because um, that was earlier. That was before. Um, that was like during the beginning part of the long piece. It would be the transition into Ignor's perception. It's time for war again. It's time for battle. Remember that it's Angrod and Ignor who are going to support Fingolfin's plan to attack. Ignor knows. It's time. It's time for war. The long peace is ending. Ignor can have, can see that perhaps as clearly as any of the elves see that. Um, and so part of his thing, seeing that the long peace is going to come to an end, should come to an end, he's like, I can't. Like, not just I won't, but I mean, like, I can't. It isn't done. I, you know, and she's not going to be okay with that because of the differences in their perspective. Because, of course, to her, it's like, well, no, this is the reason why to not to wait, right? So let's take advantage of the time that we have. Yeah, battle might be coming soon, but it might not be for 10 years. It might not be for five years. Even if it's in two years, we could have two good years, right? That's the human perspective on this problem, whereas his perspective is diametrically opposed. Um, and she can't get it and is upset um, and becomes resentful. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, exactly. As Marie says, the human perspective is that you get married before the battle. Exactly, right? Yes, yes. Um, uh, yes, humans are much more likely to leave young pregnant widows behind them when they go into war, right? I mean, that's, that's, uh, uh, that would be the human reaction to that. It's situation. a tradition. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, uh, yeah. Um, but anyway, this, I think his, if we make it connected, not just to a general cultural thing, cause that's hard. I, I think, I think that would be hard to sell. I think it'd be really hard to sell just to be like, no, like I'm not into it. Not right now. Cause you know, elves, we just kind of don't do that. Right. That's really hard to make compelling. But if we tie it to a particular insight that he has, right. If he is one of these spokesmen, possibly the primary spokesperson for it is time to attack. We have to focus on attacking now. Um, then it, it puts it in a, in a different context. And of course, the interesting thing is that it's also kind of parallel to Andreth herself, right? She had the insight to see 
the situation needs to change. With her people in Nargothron, she was like, I see that this situation is untenable. We need to change the situation, right? And here's what we, and we need to take a drastic action in order to change the situation. Ignor is in a parallel situation. He sees that the long peace, that the siege of Angband is an untenable situation. There are problems and they need to take drastic action in order to solve this problem. And he advocates drastic action, i.e. attacking Nargothrond. Uh, that would be drastic. Attacking Angband. Um, uh, so, yeah, I think that would be... Um, uh, I think that that would be... Yeah, no, Stephen H., I'm not saying Fingolfin isn't involved. I'm not trying to take it totally away from Fingolfin. But I think if, at the very least, Ignor is a major voice in that. He and Fingolfin can come to the same... You know, to similar realizations at the same time for different reasons. And the two of them can be the primary spokespeople at, you know, councils and stuff. Um, so I don't, I don't think it has to take anything away from, uh, from Fingolfin, necessarily. Um, but, um, but anyway, I think that that would... Tying that directly to his backing off from Andreth. Now, um, what would she have wanted? What was her endgame? When she comes around to embracing the concept of her love for Ignor, you know, right before he dumps her, I... What is she looking for? What's her plan? What's her proposal? I don't think it's, let's get married and I'll move in with you and be your elf queen. I don't think that would be it. Um, because, look, there are obvious issues here, right? Andreth is plenty smart enough to see that there are potential problems in this relationship. There are some long-term considerations in this relationship. Um, maybe she doesn't even articulate what she wants. Maybe she doesn't know. Maybe neither one of them know. Both of them have to be smart enough to know that. I was going to say both of them would have to be smart enough to know that their relationship doesn't necessarily doesn't have any long term in the big picture from the Elvish perspective, long term potential. Right. I mean, from an Elvish perspective, this can't be anything but a fling, a mere fling that lasts 50 years. Right. Um, at most. That. You know, um, that they would both know it could be nothing more than that. Ooh, Rhiannon's suggestion. Maybe she wants a child. They couldn't live as man. She couldn't move in with him and be his queen. But she could bear his child. Maybe the whole pregnant widow thing that we were talking about is exactly the argument she makes. That, again, because this would be ammunition for her argument, for her side of the argument between them, right? No. Okay, so 
there's going to be war soon. Well, guess what? We don't have much time under the best of circumstances. If it were peacetime and we had all the time in the world, we'd still only have a few decades, right? For you, I ignore it would still be over in a flash, right? So why on earth should shortness of time be a reason not to do this? Instead, the reason should be the very human argument of seizing the time that we have, right? And maybe, Rhiannon, of thinking about a child. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's really interesting. Yeah, and as Nick said, elves don't do flings. Yeah, no, they don't. Um, the idea of saying, since, you know, we can't extend this over, you know, hundreds of years, therefore we shouldn't have a relationship at all, that is completely alien to human thinking. But just as alien to elvish thinking is the idea of, I know that, you know, whatever happens under the best of circumstances, we are not destined for a, for what you would consider a long-term relationship. So let's, we've been given this time. We love each other and we've been given this time. Let's make the most of the time that we have. And we could have a child. We could, um, you know, fruit could, you know, good could come long-term, you know, there could still, we could still have an impact on future centuries, even if I won't be there, right? Maybe, I mean, they don't have any idea. Right. We've never had a, we've never had interbreeding before. So who knows what the child would be? Um, uh, but that concept would be as alien and even repugnant to him as the idea of just not even trying because they don't have decades or centuries would be to her, right? And that's the parting of the ways between them, right? That that's, and that's the tragic end of their relationship. They come together because of their differences and they part because of their differences. And that's why she's so mad. You know, that's why she gets really embittered about the differences and about elves and this elvish perspective. And, um, and this is, one of the consequences of the Athrabeth, of the later conversation between Finrod and Andreth, when Finrod comes and he speaks with her in this time after their parting and before the Dagor Bragalach and his death, um, when he is able to sort of explain things and he relates to her on her ground. That is reason and debate and discussion. He knows she can understand this. She's just not, right? Uh, because she's really tied up in it. Um, yeah. Stephen H. says, if she's so bitter, why doesn't she move the House of Beor somewhere else away from Dorthonian? Because she's also wise and a good leader. She knows what's best for her people. Um, she's not going to make decisions based on her own Emotions, right? Based on her own feelings, her own preferences. Um, besides which, I think by this time she passes the torch on to Barahir. Um, I think that happens relatively 
early. Yeah. Yeah. No, she's, uh, she's way too, you know, way too big a person to make her own heartache. The issue that's going to uproot her whole people, uh, just because she feels jilted or whatever, or, you know, upset. Um, nor is she going to be like going to let her, what was that word? Uh, miso, misoquendist, uh, not, she's not going to make her misoquendi, um, uh, be a reason to like turn her people against elves in general and, and, you know, uh, advocate for like anti-elf and, you know, like, you know, breaking alliances and stuff. She's, she's not going to do that. She's still going to do what's best. She's still going to do what's smart. She's just hurt. Uh, and it changes her attitude. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Now, Stephen, uh, H has a great question. Um, why Bari here is Bregor chopped liver? Yeah, sure. He can be chopped liver. Um, Owen gives us some other reason. I don't know. What do you think? I mean, it needs to be Bari here, right? I mean, Bari here, we want Bari here to be the dude in charge, right? Uh, I mean, I think it has to be Bari here because as it is, we're barely going to have time to make Barahir a major character, right? And we want to get to know Barahir a little bit so that we're invested in Barahir when we get to the outlaws, um, you know, to Barahir and Baron and the outlaws. Um, so I do think that we need, um, I do think that we need Barahir to get plenty of screen time. And if Andreth is passing things off to Bregor and Barahir is like the junior lieutenant, um, it would make Bregor's death at the Dagor Bragalock more significant if he gets more screen time prior to that. But then Barahir is a really minor character. Um, so I, for that reason, I dislike it. We don't have so much screen time to go around, right? I, I really think that we need to restrict the number of characters. Um, yeah. Yeah. And Marie points out, Andreth isn't going to pass the torch to someone her own age. Barahir is younger. Yes, it would be a deliberate passing of the torch to the younger generation. Um, uh, Barahir is going to basically grow up in Dorthonian, essentially. Um, it could also be Stephen Cover suggesting even something like a premonition, right? Um Possibly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. I mean, honestly, like, again, I do like the idea of having more rather than fewer named characters who die in the Dagor Bragalock, but honestly, I could take or leave Bregor. Um, and if I had to choose between making Bregor a more prominent character or cutting him, I'd rather cut him than make him a more major character, honestly, because I want to spend more time with Bari here. Um, we need Bar, we need to care about Bari here for, his rescue of Finrod, that needs to be really significant. We need to set him up uh, for, I mean, he's the father of Baron. Baron is a big deal, right? So we need to, we need to get Bari here to Baron set up. Um, that to me is way more important than anything Bregor could possibly be. Um, so we could also make Bregor, I mean, I don't know. He could be, I, uh, um, physically incapable 
Uh, he could be, yeah, Nick is suggesting he could just be dumb. Yeah, I mean, he could just be, like, not suitable for leadership in some other way. Um, I, we could do that. You know, I mean, he could be, uh, he could be club-footed, uh, like Brondier. You know, we don't overplay that. Um, but, um, uh, but yeah, I don't, um, I don't know. Um, uh, Rhiannon suggests he could be more of a scholar and not want to be leader. Yeah. I mean, he could be fine with that. I mean, Andreth can talk to him about it. I mean, they can be both in agreement. Um, he doesn't want to lead. And Bari here, uh, you know, is a spunky young lad who looks like just the thing that they need. And it could be by his temperament, by his uh, Bregor's, I mean, by Bregor's temperament, by Bregor's um, capacities, by his uh, professional inclinations, Rihanna, as you suggest. There are all kinds of reasons. Um, remember, this is not, we don't need a reason. There's no presumption of, uh, in the House of Beor, as we've established it, there's zero presumption of leadership passing down to the next person in the family line. Um, so Bregor wouldn't be like, oh, how dare they pass over me, right? That's not a thing in the House of Beor, as we've established it. From the transition to, from Beor to Adonel and Adonel to Andreth, uh, the fact that Bari here happens to be Andreth's relation doesn't have to be really entering into it necessarily. Um, uh, but, um, but yeah, we can, no, we can keep Bregor around. I'm fine with that. And Stephen H is, uh, uh, is lamenting a Numenorean heirloom. But Stephen, why be creative, suggest creative solutions. You see, fine. Give him a bow. Give him his, he can have a bow. Let him have his bow or give his bow to somebody else. Why couldn't it be someone else's bow? If we wanted to be someone else's bow, I don't know. Uh, there are all kinds of ways we can solve these problems. That's the fun. Let come up with solutions. Um, um, but whatever, again, it's, I, I'm open to any one of those things. I just, I think he needs to be a secondary character. He can be named, he can be on screen, he can be there, he can be a supporter of Andrath, you know, he can be there. But I don't think there's any reason why, I, I, I definitely would not want him to be leader. I think that if we're moving conceptually from Andreth to Barahir to Baron after him, I think that is plenty, plenty. Uh, and anything more is going to be unnecessarily confusing. Um uh, but, um, yeah, good. Stephen covers suggesting that Andreth could certainly, uh, uh, consult, you know, with Bregor and he suggests Barry here. Absolutely. Absolutely. Why not? Why not? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Now, Stephen, it's true that, you know, we don't have that many named characters dying in the Dagor Bragalak, and I agree. But let's hold on a second here. There's more than just named characters, right? The entire House of Bayor. We've invested, we're going to be investing quite a bit of this season in the story of the House of Bayor. And the story of the House of Bayor is going to end in fire at the end of this season. They're going to be practically annihilated at the end of this season. So, you know... Even if we're not personally and individually attached to very many of the people in it, and most of those we are going to survive, right? Andreth is going to survive at least a little bit. Bari here will survive. Um, but, uh, but almost all of them are going to die. So um, I, I, it's not just about the individual persons who die. Like the House of Beor itself is a major character 
in season five, and they're going to get practically wiped out uh, at the end of this season. That, to me, is a really big deal and should make the Dagor Bragoak still hit hard, whether or not, you know, Bregor's in the picture. Again, I'm not anti-Bregor. I'm not. I just, as I said, I would rather cut him than elevate him, basically. But I'm fine leaving him where he is. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Back to Andreth and Agnor. We'll do this last question, and then we'll end after that. Is their relationship a secret? Who knows about it? Really great question. I don't think it's a secret, exactly. Like, I don't think they hide. I don't think they, like, meet each other after dark and sneak around. I think that... But I think it's a little bit off the radar. Because I think that nobody suspects. Like, I, even Andreth doesn't suspect for a long time, right? Um, I don't think that to anybody there's really the thought. All of the people in the House of Beor, they're not going to be like, hmm, Andreth is sure spending a lot of time with that, you know, handsome elf lord. Um, because, like, they're used to Finrod hanging out with them. That's normal. And he used to hang out with Andreth and talk like they were tight. That's fine. Like, they were friends. Um, he admired her. She respected him. Um, so they would have um, um, they would have a uh, um, a paradigm for this. And romance not in the paradigm. Even more so, I would think. It would be outside the paradigm for the elves. Um I agree, Rhiannon, that in the Athrobeth, Andreth seems surprised that Finrod knows. Yes, I think that this should be a piece of insight that Finrod has um, because he knows his brother and because he knows Andreth, um, that he perceives it. Not that it's, you know, common gossip up and down the length of Beleriand, uh, really. Um Florian, exactly. Florian says, I don't think the elves would suspect much, considering that by traditional elvish standards, a few years counts as having just met. Exactly. Um, I would think it would be way outside of the paradigm. Uh, And therefore, I have to... For the elves. And therefore, I have to think that any... Like, Angrod, of course, is the most obvious candidate for, like, a confidant of Ignor. Somebody other than Andreth for Ignor to talk to about his relationship. And an opportunity. I think it would be useful for Ignor to have someone other than Andreth to talk to, because that would help us to establish the Elvish paradigm, right? Um, if Ignor says, if the only time we ever hear Ignor, we ever hear the explanation for why Ignor is pulling back from the relationship is when he tells her, it could sound like a dumping line, Right? It's not you, it's me. No, like, time of war, I'd love to, but really, honestly, like, if it were more peaceful conditions or something, I totally would be into you, but, like, I've got to go to war, and it's, like, super inconvenient. Sorry, yeah, no, not you, it's me, right? Um, That could sound super unconvincing, I think. 
However, if we have a conversation between Angrod and Ignor about this, and we see, you know, Ignor himself torn, like torn between what he himself also feels, what his own nature tells him, and yet, like, you know, his heart, he feels his heart pulling him in a different direction, and Angrod would be kind of talking through that with him. That provides a context for how Ignor really feels, right? So that we would kind of know what's behind it and the the sort of struggle that he's having uh, when he has this conversation with Andreth. Um, Stephen H., I absolutely think Evelos's fate would have to be involved in that conversation. Um, so what's Angrod's point of view, right? I don't think that Angrod's I would not want Angrod's reaction to be merely, like, shocked, appalled, angry, disgusted, how dare you. Like, I don't see Angrod doing that. Um, I would see him being understanding. Um, I do agree, Stephen. I think he would discourage it. He would definitely be anti-relationship in the long term. But I don't think he would just be, you know, the kind of stock obstacle to romantic relationship, right? Um, You know, he's not just going to be like, oh, like, how could you possibly, you know, consider a relationship with one of those human vermin? She's not good enough for you. Exactly, Marie. Like, no, there would have, I would think there would be something more. Florian, that's exactly the direction I'm thinking. Florian says, Angrod knows how it feels to lose your spouse. Uh, and with Andreth, that's inevitable from the start. Yes, um, that's the kind of thing I can very much see Angrod doing. Again, I, I do agree Angrod would be against. He would be, if anything, he would be the voice of reason to Ignor, right? If there is a part of Ignor, if his heart, if his own inclinations are leading him against sort of the natural... Uh, like uh, what his what what both his wisdom tells him, and also what the natural inclination of, uh, you know, the elvish nature and elvish culture is. Um, if he's thinking about tossing this aside, if he feels um, tempted to submit to this very human concept of seizing the day, um, Angrod would caution him against that. Um, but again, not because she's not good enough for him. Um, exactly, Stephen Cover. He would not be movie Elrond. Yes, that is, we would not have that. Exactly. Um, Florian, I agree. It would be his memory of Ethelos. It would be his experience as a widower that would inform his conversation with Ignor. Um, I think that he would be telling Ignor that he is underestimating the impact of losing your spouse. You know, it's saying to him, you cannot bind yourself to this human woman. Because, as Florian said, best case scenario is you're going to end up like me in a few decades. Right? That's best case scenario. There is no way that this ends well. Even the child thing, right? She suggests that, like their love could live on in their child even after she's gone. Okay. From a human perspective, maybe that seems satisfactory. But Angrod could say, like, look, but we both know 
we both know what this is like for elves. We both know what it means to elves to be parents, uh, you know, to, to conceive, to bear, and to raise a child, and the kind of connection between father, mother, and child that that entails. How could you do that, knowing from the start that it would be impossible? Um, not to mention, of course, the uncertainty about what would the fate of their child be? Um, or is it even possible? Right? I mean, who knows? Right? Um, who knows? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and Margaret points out that, of course, it would be much worse even than it is for Angrod, uh, because at least Angrod has the hope that he, you know, could be joined again with Evelos at some point. Um, it's not necessarily goodbye forever. Um, it would be for Ignor, and you're right, Margaret, that's got to come up. You know, like, um, the whole gift of men thing has got to be an elephant in the room there, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, Michael Dennis points out that the elves have a bad precedent with a motherless child. Yeah, would Angrod bring that up? Would Angrod uh, compare it to Feanor? Um, maybe. Maybe we could go there. Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, Stephen H., I know it's possible, um, but again... They don't know that. Um, Dior and Arendel haven't happened yet. So, like, there's there's never been any, you know, th- this is uh, this is the first romantic relationship between humans and elves. Um, they don't even know if they're genetically viable. Like, there's no evidence that they could have a child together. They don't even. I mean, how would they know? It's not it's not been experimented with yet. So, uh, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yep. Uh, Stephen, uh, Stephen H. says that Idril turned out all right without a mother. Yeah, she was a lot older when her mom died, though. Um, yeah, she was, uh, she was much older. Again, thinking about time frames, right? Uh, that is like, uh, you know, life scales. Um Again, best case scenario. Best case scenario is if you did have a child together and the child was, you know, progressing on the elvish time frame, which I would assume that Angrod would assume that the child would be an elf child. I'm just going to go with that. Um, If so, even under the best case scenario, the mother wouldn't live to see the child full grown. Like it couldn't happen. Like the Idril situation would be like the best possible case scenario, essentially. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, now, Florian, uh, wonderful point about what the elves know about the gift of men. Well, that's, of course, the whole point about the Athrobeth is they don't know clearly. Um, they've studied some. Right. They, I, this is, of course, Finrod is the one who is the leading expert on this, having examined the death of humans under laboratory conditions. Right. Uh, in Nargothrond, uh, he he uh, has some theories and ideas about this, but 
there's a lot that they don't know. Um, so they would be, and, and of course, they nobody knows anything at all about what happens when uh, elves and humans love each other very much and uh, have children. So zero precedence for that right now. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Nick, exactly. Because the other alternative, right? I mean, both scenarios with the child are not good scenarios. Either the child is elvish, and then again, the mom can't, physically can't live to see him grow up. Or uh, the child is human and, you know, burns out like a matchstick before Ignor's eyes. Which do you choose, Ignor? Right? I mean, not good options. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah. Now, Philip asks, hey, Philip, um, is it then that the gift of Iluvatar will be slowly revealed throughout the course of the season? Yeah, we haven't thought about that explicitly. It obviously first comes up with the death of Beor, aging and death, but the question of what does the death mean? I mean, the first thing that is empirically obvious from only a comparatively small bit of observation is that they operate on different timescales, right? That they age and die. But what happens after death and how do they know? When do they begin to guess that it's different for the humans? Because it would be natural for the elves to assume that just because they die sooner doesn't mean they're not headed off to Mandos and rebirth thereafter, right? Why not? Why wouldn't they assume that? Um, ah, see, Nick, there you go. Suggesting solutions. I like it. Nick says that Adonel would be there to contextualize Beor's death for Finrod, which would be a good way to show her wisdom. Wouldn't it, though? Absolutely. Having Adonel speak to this? Sure. Sure. She can contextualize the death of Beor in the, uh, in the history of their people, right? She would be the repository of, the, of, of this wisdom. Yeah. Yeah. They could, Adonel and Finrod could have sort of the first conversation about death and what it means. Um, enough to give Finrod something to work with in his own philosophical speculations. Right, which is what, in the end, he's going to be bringing to Andreth into their conver- into their Athrobeth conversation later on. Okay, so who knows about it? Very few. So we talked about elves. Finrod suspects he only knows because he knows his brother really well, and he knows Andreth, and he perceives the truth of this. Um, Angrod, Ignor, um, and Angrod talk about it. How about Andreth? Any of the people know? Any of the other humans know? I don't think they need to. I don't think that Andreth would have a confidant. I think she'd keep it to herself and be bitter. I think it's one of the things that causes her bitterness is that she feels alone. Um, I don't think she would talk to anybody about it. I mean, we could give her somebody to talk to easily enough. Hey, she could talk to Bregor. Look at that! Screen time! But I, I don't know. I, I, I kind of like the idea of Andreth just keeping this all in. 
and bottling it up. And the reason I like this idea is because it makes the significance of the Athrobeth, the conversation with Finrod, that much more. When she finally does open up um, and she and Finrod have that heart-to-heart, it makes that heart-to-heart much more powerful and much more significant if she's never really had anybody or allowed herself to have anybody to talk to about this. Yeah, Marie says it would explain the bitterness. Now, I agree, Florian, it would be appealingly ironic if she talked to Bara here about elf-human relationships not working, right? Remember this, little Baron. Boy, this is a bad idea, right? Um, that would be funny, but um, but yeah, I, I do kind of like the... Uh, um, I do kind of like the idea of her not talking to anybody about it, and nobody even necessarily suspecting. I, I mean, I don't think that the people would be prone to suspect much about it, and, and they're... You know, again, the time that they spend in conversation together wouldn't seem strange to anybody. And again, none of them would even imagine that. Not only that, but Andreth would be like an institution among them, right? I don't think they would imagine her as falling in love with somebody. Like, you know, she's like their wise woman. She's not going to get a crush on somebody, right? I mean, that would be weird anyway for them to think. So, um, so yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think my vote would be for Andreth. Um, bottling it up and not talking to anybody until she talks to Finrod about it. Um, but Florian, there's got to be some kind of comment, right? I mean, how could we resist any allusion to human elf relationships in like young Baron's hearing, right? Surely something has to be dropped somewhere at some point. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, we we could do the parallel in hindsight. I agree, I agree. But um, uh, I don't, I don't know. I mean, certainly, I mean, I agree. There's too there's too rich a uh, potential field of foreshadowing and irony there um, to never have it come up in connection with Baron or Bari here uh, at all. But we can see we see how that might emerge. Okay, we should stop there. Uh, I've kept you guys plenty long enough here this evening. Um, next time we will move on to focus. We will shift our focus more fully to the elves. We've transitioned into that with our discussion of the relationship with Ang- uh, Andreth and Ignor uh, here tonight, and 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 some development of the character of Ignor, which I'm excited about. Um, let's shift to thinking more about the larger situation uh, and storylines of the elves. What are they doing? What's what are going? What are the major elf storylines? Um, who are the major elf characters that we want to focus on? Who are the ones who drive the action? Um, who are going to get most screen time among the elves in this season? Um, and how do we do that? Um, but there are certain, there are obviously some compartmentalizations there. Uh, that is the Gondolin story. Gondolin is the definition of compartmentalized, right? Uh, so we don't have to go there right away. Let's, having begun with Ignor, let's begin there. Let's at least consider Ignor and Angrod and, and Finrod, right, and their situation and their whole outlook, not vis-a-vis the House of Beor, but the larger situation here in Beleriand. Um, and then after that, I, I think we can go uh, to Fingolfin uh, and, uh, and you know, the Hithlum folks, and then also out to uh, uh, Mithros and the Feanorians, uh, and we'll touch on them. Then we'll come back to 
uh, Gondolin, uh, and of course the Arathel and Ale story and how exactly we want to handle that. Um, yeah, yeah. So that's the, uh, that's kind of, kind of makes sense. Um, cool. Ah, Florian has ideas about involving Kelegorm and Huan before and after the Dagor Bragalak. Well, I mean, I am always interested in plans that involve Huan. So, um, especially as we are creeping ever closer, uh, to, you know, the primary story and, uh, ultimate heroic death of Huan. So, you know, we, um, uh, definitely more Huan is better than less Huan. (laughs) I can certainly agree with that. Question is, can we contrive to to cram Huan into our uh, Haleth Andreth liaison? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Let's just do it all in one episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Andreth and there, Haleth meet, and a, meanwhile, here comes Huan. Yeah, yeah. Nick's complaining about not having enough time, so. <laughs> <laughs> Nick just very eloquently says no. <laughs> <laughs> well, fine, fine. Can fine. we can we just can we just put all of our favorite characters in one scene? Is that asking too much? It doesn't seem like asking too much to me. <laughs> anyway, okay, all right. So thanks, everybody. So uh, this week we're off schedule because we couldn't meet last week, which would have been our regularly scheduled time. So we had to shift it forward to this week, but we we should keep the schedule. Um, that is meet again next week and then get back to our original schedule. Cause if we, if we go every two weeks from here, um, I'm going to run into other problems. My family's going on vacation in August. If we go back to the original schedule, uh, we will actually miss both myth moot and, my family vacation in our regular cycle. So, um, uh, so if we go back, um, so if we meet again next week and go again, resuming the original schedule, then we'll be back on track. And I think we can do that. So let's do, um, let's meet again next week. Um, on the 30th of July, uh, for our, uh, our next session as we shift our, uh, storyline discussions to the elves, which honestly, I've I've got less to say about the elves in this season. I think the the humans are the real stars of the show. I think in yeah. season five, yeah. um, the elves are kind of backdroppy. I mean, there are some important things we need to establish, but um, I really don't think that they are the main drivers of the of the season here. So, um, anyway, okay, very good. So. July 30th. We will meet next. Thanks, everybody, for a wonderful discussion tonight, as always, and I will see you guys next week. So thanks for listening, and Godspeed. <laughs>